Amen. We're turning to scripture, please, to the book of Nehemiah and the chapter 8. These two books, Ezra and Nehemiah, which of course are contemporary, Uh, these men both exercised ministry at that time. This was the first two books that I ever studied as a student under Dr. Douglas, and I've always had a special affection for the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Chapter 8 begins with the words, And all the people gathered themselves together as one man into the street that was before the water gate. And they spake unto Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded to Israel. And Ezra the priest brought the law before the congregation, both of men and women, and all that could hear with understanding upon the first day of the seventh month. And he read therein before the street that was before the water gate, from the morning until midday, before the men and the women, and those that could understand, and the ears of all the people were attentive unto the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood upon a pulpit of wood, which they had made for the purpose, and beside him stood Mattathiah and Shema, and Aniah and Urijah, and Hilkiah and Masiah, on his right hand, and on his left hand, Padiah and Mishael, and Malchai and Hashem, and Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshulam. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. Notice where he was when he read the scriptures. Some people might wonder why the pulpits in our churches are always above the people and central, which was a principle of the Reformed Church anyway. It's, because, it's not because the minister or the preacher is above the people. It's because the Word of God is above the people. And your attention is drawn to that. When he opened it, it says, all the people stood up. That's still the practice in some Reformed churches. When the scripture is read, the congregation stand, and there's nothing wrong with that. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen. And lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And Joshua, and Bani, Sherebiah, Jehem, Akub, Shebethni, Hodgei, Masai, Kelata, Azariah, Jezebed, Hanan, Peliah, and the Levites. They didn't get those names from the Orange Hall, you can be sure of that. Caused the people to understand the law. And the people stood in their place. So they read in the book of the law of God distinctly and gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. And Nehemiah, which is the Tershatha, or the governor, And Ezra the priest, the scribe, and the Levites that taught the people, said unto all the people, This day is holy unto the Lord your God. Mourn not, nor weep, for all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Then he said unto them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink the sweet, and send portions unto them for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy unto our Lord, neither be ye sorry, For the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites stilled all the people, saying, Hold your peace, for the day is holy. Neither 
be ye grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and to drink and to send portions and make great mirth because they had understood the words that were declared unto them. May the Lord bless that very powerful passage of the word of God to all of our hearts. At this stage, amen. Let's turn to Nehemiah chapter 8, please. Most ministers aren't too keen when other ministers and preachers are in the meeting. And uh, I see my friend Paul down there and, uh, and his wife and children. But the good thing about them is they had to suffer me for a number of years when they were members of Ban the Hinge Church. So they know all the weaknesses you're about to hear repeated here this morning. Well, we're glad to see them in the meeting and trust the Lord will bless each one as we meet in here, in fact, in the Lord's name. A few other preachers that haven't had the misfortune to be in a meeting I have taken. <laughs> You're about to understand why I don't get that many meetings during the winter time. But we're glad to be with you, folks. That's a wonderful passage of Scripture, one of my favorites. I think there are few people who would argue the point that our land and our world at this moment is in a very bad state. I read a statistic not too long ago that there are more one-parent families than there are conventional families, such as the weight of divorce and separation and breakup of marriage. You must ask yourself the question, is there an answer? Well, according to the scriptures and according to this portion, yes, there is. And that's what we want to look at today. When you think in recent days how this country has suffered a number of these so-called pride marches, where our streets have been polluted by the vileness, and that's the word, by the way, the scripture uses, vile, and that's what this is. I have always refused to refer to the gay community. I don't use that word. Arguing with one of them one time at a protest, he said to me, I don't like your description of me and people like me. Because I was referring to them, you see, as sodomites. But I said, well, that's a scriptural term. But I said, I can use another term the Bible uses if you want. The Bible calls you dogs. Would you prefer that I called you that? For I can use either title, I don't mind. But I won't say gay. Do you know one of our lovely hymns has the word gay in it? And they've taken it and prostituted the meaning of the term. It means an entirely different thing today than what it used to. But the land is polluted. There can be no doubt about the moral state of Ulster and the nation. When you even have members of our police service marching in a parade like that, it's a despicable situation. But a revival of true religion, as we see in Nehemiah chapter 8, would do much to change things in our society. I want to look at some of these characteristics of this revival just, just for a few moments. First of all, I want you to consider the attention devoted to the Scriptures. 
Look at verse 1. All the people, and notice that, all the people gathered themselves together, watch this bit, as one man into the street that was before the water gate, and they spake unto Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded to Israel. You see, friend, revival comes through the word of God. We need the book in our society today. There was a return here to the word. Verse 5 reminds us that Ezra opened this book in the sight of all the people. And the people stood up. The emphasis here is on the word. And that's what you need to look for. The Bible, sadly, is not foremost in many churches this morning. There are a number of assemblies that meet in our own land and across the earth, and they hardly refer to the Scriptures at all. There's more an entertainment culture, you see. The more happy, clappy singing you can get, the more this chorus singing with no scriptural reference, and I'm not against singing, I love singing. My problem is I can't sing too well myself, but I love the singing. But not when it replaces the attention upon the Word of God. The preaching of the Word of God is is prime. It has to be, first of all, it has to be yes to the four. The result of this return, well, you read it in verse 1. They stood as one man. There's a lot of talk, friend, this morning about unity. And I believe in the unity of the Christian church. Not the ecumenical, spurious unity of our day. You remember the prayer of the Lord Jesus. And they're so good at quoting at these ecumenists, you know. I pray that they all may be one. And their great cry is that the Lord will make us all one. The Romanism, Protestantism, all the cults and everything all come together in one great world religion. That has nothing to do with the prayer of Jesus. You see, every prayer, and think about this, every prayer that Jesus Christ ever prayed is answered. There was never a prayer that he prayed that God said no to. Never one. Think of them all if you want this recorded. There's not, not one. Not, not even a deviation from one. And when he prayed that they all may be one, that prayer is answered. Because the true Christian, whatever their denominational label, whatever their class, culture, or creed, they are one. Those people across in the States, in India, in Africa, in Asia, in Europe, that love the Savior as we do, they're one. We are unified. We are one. Neither Jew nor Greek, bond nor free, male nor female. All one. And the key is in Christ Jesus, friend, you see. Here's the result of this return to the book. Unity. Disunity among brethren is a contradiction in terms. The Psalm 133 will speak of the unity of the believer. And yet I know places, I've known places in the past, I'm not thinking of Hillsborough or anywhere else in particular, 
But when the meeting ended, there were families who were at loggerheads. And if they happened to meet in the aisle going out, or if someone came in late and happened to meet them coming in, one party soon got a great interest in astronomy. Man, they, they wanted to examine all the stars. The others, they were interested in geology. They wanted to see what was in the ground, what we're going to dig up, what will paleontology teach us, until they passed. Now, friend, whatever the reason, that is not a biblical concept at all. God's people should not be in that situation. You know what, Jesus, if you were asked to give your testimony, I'm sure every Christian in this building could come to this pulpit and give a word of testimony. And I, and I wouldn't doubt that testimony. But you know what the Savior said? And I remember this struck me very forcibly one day. Jesus said, By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, that ye love one another. And what's he saying? Surely he's saying, if there's no evidence of love, you're not my disciple. Now there's people in this province, and of course I'm not going to name them, but they're hard to get on with. And you know, you maybe don't even like them at times. But you love them. I thank God that I can stand in the pulpit before the Lord this morning and say, there's no one that I know that bears the name of Jesus that I don't love. Some of them may not love me. In fact, some of them don't love me. One man told me one time when I came to preach at his church, he says, I should have been out there with a picket poster, picket at the gate. I love that man, still do. You see, that's the great key here. There's an emphasis on the scripture it brings about a result, and, and that, I call that the reception of the word. Verses 7 and 8 names all these people, and it says, The Levites caused the people to understand the law. That's the preacher's job, to be able to break down the bread of life so that you, the people in the meeting house, know it and understand it, comprehend it. And then it says, So they read in the book of the law, distinctly now here's one of my I'm very wary about even mentioning this but this is one of my bugbears if you like the way some people read the scriptures in public is terrible now I mightn't be the best reader in the world but you know you know when you see a comma and a full stop it's there for a reason and I have listened to folk read and they've added words, sometimes three or four words. And they've taken away sometimes two or three words. And it's not distinct. And it's wrong. And if I do it, and if I've did it, as I may have done with some of these pronunciations, trying to do it very quickly, I acknowledge that. But this book says they gave the sense and cause the people to understand the reading. That, that's the preacher's job. That's the Sunday school teacher's job. That's the youth leader's job. Do it in such a way that folk understand. Verse 13 then declares, 
in, in this chapter. On the second day, they were gathered together, the chief of the fathers, the people. Understand the words of the law, that they might instruct in the words of the they, they knew what it was about, you see. That's it. I know there are many things in the Bible hard to be understood. Many great depths in which none of us can plunge. But we should understand. We should comprehend. We should grasp what's been taught. A willing people will receive the word of God and will live by its precepts. Now not everyone understands the book. We must strive to make them understand it. The important point here in this first point is the attention that's given to the Word of God. Friend, do you love the Bible? Is it your guide? Is it your light, your lamp, your torch? The attention devoted to the Scriptures. Then there's the attitude described in the street. We've seen that a little too already. It was the people themselves who asked for the word. It wasn't just the leadership that brought it out as a decree that had to be followed. The people wanted it. Do our people want the word of God? That's the question. They began to see their need, you see. And it's not a good sign. Before I was saved, I heard the Bible preached. I heard the gospel preached. But it didn't mean a whole lot to me that time. But when the attitude changed, when God illuminated his word through his spirit to my heart and mind, it was different then. Verse 5 tells us, I've made reference to this, that all the people stood up. This is their reverence for the word of God. And you see, people today don't, they don't care about the book. You notice in quiz programs, if you ever watched them, saw one yesterday, I think it was, and the girl was asked, what testament in the Holy Bible is the book of Micah to be found? Genesis, she said. A five-year-old in your Sunday school here would have known that that wouldn't be the answer. There's such an ignorance. And she opened the and said, I haven't read the Bible in many years. There's no reverence today for God's word. But these people had a regard and a reverence for the book. In verse 3, we read the fact that they were anxious to hear it. He read from the morning. Now you think of that statement. That's from the light, literally. From dawn, if you will. Until midday. Could you stand for seven hours or so and listen to the Bible being read and expounded? No, you couldn't. I don't even think I could. In fact, I know I couldn't. But if there's a three hour video of some great film or something, I'm no bother watching it. But seven hours. And this is the Middle East, remember. This is not the Arctic where it's nice and cold. This is hot time. Right to midday, which is the hottest time of all. 
But they were so anxious to hear it and they were to give attention and did give attention to it. You remember John Major's famous maxim, we need to get back to basics. Well, this day in Israel, it was back to the Bible, back to the law. Look at their response to it. Verse 9 of the chapter. Nehemiah, which is the Tershatha, the governor, and Ezra the priest, the scribe, and the Levites, all united, this religious leadership, were all one in this thing. This day is holy unto the Lord your God. Mourn not, nor weep, for all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Have you ever wept? Reading the scriptures. So overwhelmed with God's showing you and speaking to you about. That you have to weep. Well that's what the people were doing. What a response. Then they're told in verse 10. Go your way. Eat the fat. Not too many would do that. Let you into a secret. I love the fat. And you can tell. But I do. Eat the fat. Don't miss out on any of this, he's saying. Drink the sweet and send portions unto them for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy unto the Lord. Neither be ye sorry, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Friend, if you're a strong Christian this morning, then the joy of the Lord is the secret the joy that he has put in your heart makes you joyful and, uh, and fruitful and powerful in your Christian life. That's it. And verse 12 tells us the people went their way. And I love what it says that we were there all. All the people. Now revival doesn't always mean all. If there was revival tomorrow... It would certainly turn much of the country, but it wouldn't be the conversion of every sinner that lives in Ulster. But oh, what a difference it would make when people gather to hear the word of God. Imagine walking along a country lane and hearing men gathering behind a hedge on their knees crying to God for mercy. That's what happened in 1859. That's what happened in the great Welsh revival in the early 1900s. That's what happened in the Isle of Lewis in the late 40s and early 50s. And God hasn't changed, brethren. The Lord's still the same. The free church was built on the, the, the premise that God could send revival. This was always Dr. Paisley's vision for revival. Preached more times in revival than anybody ever knew. Long for revival. That's what we need. The people went away. The thing to notice here is they were different after they heard the word of God than before it. Verse 14 uh, declares there, if I can turn this page, they found written. Now notice that. They found it written. They had to look for it. 
like those in the New Testament, to search the Scriptures. Friend, you'll never know the book if you don't read the book. And I don't mean a two-minute psalm last thing at night before we drift off into sleep. The Savior knew the book, didn't he? Of course, he wrote it. When the devil tempted him in the wilderness, three times he answered him from Scripture, from the book of Deuteronomy it was, of course. But that's all the Lord, that's the only weapon the Lord used, you know. The Word of God. And what does it say? The devil left him for a season, not for all time, but for a season. He'll be back at you. You could defeat him today. He'll come back at you tomorrow. You have to live for us tomorrow, today, and face him when he comes tomorrow. The key is, search the scriptures. This ought to be our attitude. This is revival. If you read it too quickly, you know you'll miss it. I've mentioned this before, I'm sure, but in in Luke chapter 5, when the Savior told them to let down their nets for a draft, Peter disputed this. I suppose his attitude, well, Lord, you're a carpenter, I'm a fisherman. I have fished this sea all my life. I know all about fishing. There's no fish. We toiled all the night. We're caught nothing. There's nothing there. Nothing's coming to the net. But because he loved the Lord, you know, He says, at thy word, I will let down the net. But that's not what he was told to do. He was told to let down the nets. And what was the result of that? People have preached great sermons on how obedient Peter was when he wasn't obedient. Because he didn't let down the nets, the Bible says the net break. And when the net broke, fish escaped. I tell you, friend, you need to Read the word carefully. Like Elijah said of the, when the false prophets challenged him on Mount Carmel. Elijah said, I have done, Lord, all these things at thy word. Then the fire of the Lord fell. Not before, but then. You see, if we do God's work, brethren, God's way, If we behave the way the Lord wants us to behave concerning the scriptures and develop that love for the book and live by the book and preach the book and practice the book, this is revival. I think it was Spurgeon said of John Bunyan, if you prick him anywhere, his blood is bibline. So saturated with the scriptures was Bunyan. He nearly bled the scriptures. Like the great man, David's servant, of whom it says, the sword clave to his hand. He couldn't even let it go. It became part of him. We need to wield it with great effectiveness. Young people, get to know your Bible. Get to learn the scriptures. To know the scriptures. To live by the scriptures. The attention devoted to the scriptures. Very quickly. The action demanded by this statute. 
In Leviticus 23, just to be very brief, Leviticus uh, 23, and the verse 34, I think it is, I'm wanting to go to. Leviticus 23, verse 34. Yes. Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, The fifteenth day of this seventh month shall be the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days unto the Lord. And verse 41. And ye shall keep it a feast unto the Lord seven days in the year. It shall be a statute forever in your generations. Ye shall celebrate it in the seventh month. Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 14 to verse 18. Linked up with Deuteronomy 16 and 13. That's all about the Feast of Tabernacles. Reminding Israel of the time they had no other dwelling in the wilderness. Verse 43 of Leviticus 23. And also, of course, to show gratitude for the fruits of the year. Leviticus 23, 39. Now, according to Nehemiah 8 and 17, the congregation of them that were come out of the captivity made booths and sat under the booths. Listen to this. For since the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, unto that day, had not the children of Israel done so? And there was great gladness. They had neglected it for generations. They hadn't done it. You remember the feast of the Lord? Many feasts of the Lord. When you get into the Gospel of John, it speaks about now there was a feast of the Jews. Because that's all these feasts had become. Just feasts of the Jews not feasts of the Lord. It's like the modern Lord's table in many places. It's just a, a service to add on, that's all. The real reasoning behind it all, the focus of it all, it's gone. The Feast of Tabernacles was not observed. The booths had not been made nor dwelt in for a long time. Folks, this is apostasy. That's why they needed revival in Nehemiah chapter 8 and they got it. And when they got it and reinstituted these feasts, there was great gladness, joy unspeakable and full of glory. That's it. Do we know anything about it? Oh, beloved, listen, let's not fail God in these things. Let's put our dependence and our trust and our hope in the God of this book. The Bible, as old Bishop Chilling was said, I think it was, the Bible and the Bible only, the religion of Protestants. That's it. God's word. And it's only sin will keep you from this book, but this book will keep you from sin. If you peruse its pages, seek its precepts, live its statutes, I believe we could know at least in part a moving of God in our lives and in the lives of our churches. Just imagine not being able to get into church prayer meetings midweek because of the crowd. 
or the prayer meetings prior to the services because of the crowd. Can God do this? Of course he can. He's done it in the past. Even I'm relatively young when it comes to church historians and church history. But I remember days in my early Christian life, not all that long ago, when we had meetings like that. Five and six people all starting to pray at the one time. You couldn't even get into it. I remember Dr. Paisley at a prayer meeting one time and he tried to get in to pray on a number of occasions. And somebody always beat him to it. If you're beating Paisley to prayer, you're doing rightly. But he got up and he says, I'm away to pray for myself for I can't get praying in here. And then he went, went to another place to pray. Oh, for those are days of blessing. Days of blessing. That's what we need. May the Lord be pleased to send it to us for his name's sake. Let's bow in prayer, please. Lord, we do thank thee for thy mercy. That thou art the God who is the author of revival. That you can send blessing to your children and to your church. Now, Lord, we look to thee to do that. O God, revive thy work in the midst of the years. Make known in great wrath. Remember mercy. Teach us to walk with our God and to do humbly. Bless this church, Lord. O God, may its people be set on fire. May its stand be known widely in the area. And may people be drawn to this beautiful building, not because of the the grandeur of the place, but because of the Christ that's preached here. So bless us now, Lord. Bring us back tonight for the gospel service in the fullness of the blessing and be pleased to abide with us this day. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm not going down to the door.